Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 19. This morning we'll be looking at verses 11 through 27. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. It'll change your life. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We are an impatient people. We hate to wait. If we were all powerful, we wouldn't wait for anything. We would demand immediate gratification in all circumstances, and we would have the power to make it happen. But since most of the world is outside of our control, we have to learn how to wait. When it comes to waiting, one thing we learn from experience is that it helps to wait, it helps to be patient as you wait, if you can see the reason for the delay, and especially if you can understand the reason for the delay. For instance, if you're stuck in a traffic jam, it's easier to wait if you can actually see the accident is, that is causing the delay, that's causing the jam in the traffic. It's easier if you can see the construction actually happening that's causing the traffic jam because you can see it and you understand. 
Or if you happen to be stuck on Atherton Street and you can see the construction, but you can't understand why it's taking five years to complete, you may also get frustrated and find it hard to be patient. My wife and I went to Disney World last fall and I was struck while we were there of how well the people who run Disney World understand the psychology of waiting. The best ride there, if you ever go, the best ride is called Star Wars The Rise of the Resistance. Amazing ride. We waited almost two hours to go on a five-minute ride. It was a long, long wait, longest wait we had while we were there. But what struck me is they were genius in the way in which they set up the wait. Because at the beginning, you walk into a series of caves, and you're in these rooms in these caves, like you're entering into the, the uh, bunker, the, uh, the, the settlement of the, the, the rebellion. And so you're working your way through these cave rooms and hallways, and at any given time, you can only see about a dozen or so people in line in front of you. And so you can see an end, you can see progress, but what you realize is you get to the next room, then you get to the next hallway, then you get to the next room. And somehow they enable you to wait for almost two hours for a five-minute ride. It's incredible they can do that. Here in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a parable about a king and his servants. And the reason for telling this parable is to teach us to wait for the coming of his, the fullness of his kingdom. That's why he tells this story. He shows us that the key to waiting patiently for the kingdom to come in that final sense, the key to waiting is to see and understand the purposes for the delay. If you can see and understand the purposes for the delay in the coming of his kingdom, it will enable you to trust and be patient. This is called the parable of the minas. And if you know the New Testament, if you know the Gospels, there is another parable that Jesus told that's very similar called the parable of the talents. Very similar, but there are some very significant differences, and the parable of the talents was told for a slightly different purpose. And we'll see that as we dig into this parable. But it gives us an example of how Jesus did repeat some of his sayings. We see that in the Gospels. He repeated some of his common sayings, and he sometimes would repeat a parable, but he would change the elements of the story in order to apply it to different circumstances and to different people. Well, here in verse 11 of chapter 19, Luke actually begins by telling us the reason, what was going through Jesus' mind as he begins to tell the parable, and he gives the re two reasons for the story, or two related reasons. First of all, his, he and his disciples are getting close to Jerusalem. We saw last week they're in Jericho, which is about 18 miles away. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that from about halfway through his ministry on, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was focused on fulfilling his mission to go to the cross to redeem his people. And so he is driven to Jerusalem, and now he's getting close. And it says, Luke says, they, his followers, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Put yourself in their mindset. The Jews had been oppressed for a long time by the Roman Empire. 
The Roman soldiers had invaded their country. They had taken over their country. They were oppressing them in many different ways. And as we hear this story, the Jews are preparing for the Passover in Jerusalem. And here is one among them who many have come to believe is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Now remember, the Passover is the celebration of God delivering his people by means of the leadership of Moses out from under the oppressive rule of the Egyptians, out of their slavery. You can imagine why the Passover would be a time. You've got all these heightened, this heightened revolutionary spirit. You've got these messianic expectations which are intense in this period of time. You've got one who, among you who's doing miracles who many believe to be the Messiah, and he's approaching Jerusalem. You can understand why they thought the kingdom of God is going to happen immediately. When we get to Jerusalem, his disciples thought, it's all going to happen. The hope of all the generations is going to happen. Imagine if America was, was invaded and occupied by a stronger foreign power and we were under their oppression. Can you imagine what the 4th of July celebrations would be in America? It's the same kind of thing in a very spiritual sense for the Jews. And you add to that that, as we know, the Bible is what we call progressive revelation. The Bible reveals who God is, who we are, God's plan of salvation, the covenant of grace. It reveals it slowly. Little bit by little bit, the light is increased for us to understand what God is doing in the world. And as that plan is being unveiled, the Old Testament prophecies didn't clearly distinguish between two comings of the Messiah. It's easy to read the Old Testament prophecies and understand why so many Jews thought that when the Messiah appeared the first time, the fullness of salvation and the fullness of the kingdom would be established. The, the period in between the two comings had not yet fully been revealed. Now, don't get me wrong, it's there in the Old Testament if you know where to look for it. The Messiah was to come as a suffering servant who would die on behalf of his people. That's clearly there taught in Isaiah. And the second coming of the Messiah as a conquering king definitely would be a separate event. But it's not clear in the Old Testament. And so we can't be judgmental about the Jews who thought, okay, Jesus, we think he's Messiah. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to take the throne. He's going to drive the Romans out of, our, out of here. He's going to set up an earthly kingdom that will extend to all corners of the world. And Jesus knew what was about to happen, that as he entered Jerusalem, the crowds were going to gather outside the gates and lay down their, their robes and pull out their palm branches, and begin declaring, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So, knowing that this is about to happen, it says, Luke tells us, Jesus tells this parable, he tells this story, in order to manage expectations, to help us understand the coming of the kingdom, and what our role would be as we wait. How can we wait patiently for the fullness of God's kingdom? Well, that's what this story addresses. Now, I want to, before I begin to dig into the details of it, I want to talk a little bit about what kind of a parable it is. Usually when we start to talk about a parable, we want to point out that parables typically just make one major point, and you have to be careful 
not to apply every single detail in the story, every single person, every single place, every single action, to try to find some parallel to that in reality. Um, that kind of a story we would call an allegory. An allegory is when almost everything in the story relates to something in reality. Um, but this is not like that. But it's also not a classic parable either, where there's only really one main point. There is a main point, but there's a lot of allegory to this one. And so the way I, I like to illustrate it is, when you think of an allegory, you think of Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, almost everything in the story of Pilgrim's Progress relates to some real spiritual person thing or something in reality. Or you might have the Lord of the Rings. People who read The Lord of the Rings often want to read it like an allegory, but it's not. Tolkien wasn't writing that story as an allegory. He really was making some major points about reality, about spiritual things in reality, but you would go nuts trying to apply who does this represent and what does this event represent. In between Pilgrim's Progress and The Lord of the Rings, I would say, is The Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. A lot of allegory in those stories, but you can't apply everything. Not everything in the story relates to something. It's kind of between an allegory and a, and a classic parable. Well, that's what you have in this parable. I tell all that to say that's what you have here. There's a lot of allegory here. You can, you can actually relate almost everything in it to a spiritual reality, some, some real thing. So as we dig in, just with that understanding, I hope that's helpful, Let's see what it first teaches us. First, it teaches us as we want to know how to see and understand the reasons for the wait that we are currently experiencing as we look for Christ to return. The first thing that this parable teaches us is the purpose of the king's leaving. It's important that we understand that the king has to leave and why he has to leave. Verse 12. Jesus begins the story by saying, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. Now, that statement in and of itself reflects a historical reality that which actually was the real situation in Judea in that day. Because, as we said, the Roman Empire controlled most of the civilized world. But under the Roman emperor, you had regions that were ruled by, sometimes they were called kings, but they weren't kings in the ultimate sense. They didn't have ultimate authority. They were appointed by the Roman emperor, and they were fully accountable to the Roman emperor, kind of like we would say a governor to a president. But they were often called a king. They were considered rulers in that sense. Just think of the Herods. The Herods that reigned over Judea during the time of Jesus, they did not have ultimate authority. They served under the authority of the Roman emperor and had to do anything that the emperor told them to do, but they had some legitimate, within boundaries, had some legitimate power over Judea. Well, that's the historical background of what Jesus is saying here. What, for Herod to get appointed as the king, King Herod, over Judea, he had to go to Rome and have his claim, he'd have to make his claim for, for that, that rule, and that would have to be given to him. He'd have to be appointed by the emperor to rule over Judea. Well, that's what happens here. The nobleman goes away to a higher authority in order to receive the right in order to reign over the, the, the region. And so the nobleman in the story, again, here's where it's kind of like an allegory. It's clearly Jesus. He's clearly picturing himself having to go away 
in order to receive authority. But in reality, he doesn't go to any earthly authority. He doesn't go to the emperor. He doesn't go to any earthly authority. He goes, he ascends to the Father. And the Father grants him the kingdom. He receives his power and authority. But in order to go and make his claim for authority, he had to go through a an horrific departure. He had to be the suffering servant. He had to be beaten, spit upon, nailed to a cross, die the most painful death imaginable, to bear the wrath of God that our sins deserve. He had to go through that kind of departure in order to make his claim to receive his kingdom. If he did not obey the Father's will, he would not have been made king. But he did. And so, you know, this is what his disciples, he wanted his disciples to understand this, but he knew they weren't there yet. He had just explained it to them. I mean, you only have to go back about 10, 12 verses back to chapter 18. It says, Jesus... And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. He told them in plain language what was to expect when they got to Jerusalem. But still, they're expecting this conquering king to ride his war steed into the city and drive out the Romans and establish a physical kingdom on earth. He had to suffer and die. He had to depart. And having suffered and died, he had to be raised from the dead and he had to ascend to his throne in heaven. And as he took that throne in heaven, he was given full authority over the universe. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's not something we're waiting on. He's already the king. He's already in authority. But it's a spiritual reign. That's what he was trying to explain to Pilate when he was on trial before Pilate, the representative of the Roman authority. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Like so many people claim. And Jesus replied this way, and his words are extremely important. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then he goes on to say, for this purpose I was born to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see, that's how a spiritual kingdom spreads its influence. A spiritual kingdom does not spread by the sword. A spiritual kingdom does not spread by F-18s or F-20s. It does not, it does not spread by firepower. The kingdom, a spiritual kingdom spreads by the power of the word and the power of the spirit. So Jesus needed to die, be raised from the dead, take his throne so that he could establish a spiritual kingdom over the earth. Well, why, why is it so hard to see this spiritual kingdom then? Well, this story actually addresses that. In verse 14, it says, But his citizens, those who are under his authority, remember, he's king of kings and lord of lords, everyone's under his authority, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. 
Of course, the immediate reference here that Jesus wants his listeners to recognize are the unbelieving Jews who would not accept him as the Messiah. The ones who stood before him when Pilate brought him out to present him to the crowds in Jerusalem, the ones who said, we have no king but Caesar, Caesar crucify him. Since then, the world is divided into two kinds of people, the rebellious citizens and the faithful servants. We'll get to the faithful servants in a moment. A majority of those under the reign of King Jesus are rebellious citizens who do not want him to reign over them. They shake their fist at the throne of heaven. And then there's a minority of faithful servants. Understanding the reason for Jesus' departure helps us wait. He had to go away. But there's a purpose in it. To establish his spiritual reign by the spread of his word and his spirit to the four corners of the earth. That's what he had to do. Understanding his departure helps us wait for his return. Secondly, understanding the purpose of us being left here helps us to wait for his return. That's where we get to the servants in the story. The king, or the nobleman, before he receives his kingdom, he calls together his servants, and he gives to each one of them a mina. A mina was a coin. It was in the current currency of that day. It was a coin that was worth, they estimate, about 100 days, of wa uh, one day, 100 days worth of wages for a common laborer. So in other words, for a common laborer, about three and a half months, give or take, of, of income. Uh, you know, a significant amount of money, but not a huge amount of money. But each one of them was given the same amount, uh, a mina, uh, or three and a half months worth of wages. What does that represent? Now again, assuming that it's appropriate to think of it somewhat allegorically, what does the mina represent? Well, here's where I think it helps to compare it to the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, the servants of the master were all given different amounts. And when we interpret that one, we say, well, that means that some servants of the king are given more skills, more gifts, more opportunity, more resources. Not every servant in the kingdom is given the same amount of, serve, of, of, of uh, resources in order to serve the king. And that's how that's usually taught. But here you have each one of the ten servants given the same amount, the same mina. Every one of them has the same amount. I think as we see it progress forward, as we continue to look at the elements of the story, we're going to see what I believe to be that, that, that the mina is really the truth, and particularly the gospel truth. Every one of the servants of the king is given the truth of the gospel. And what the nobleman says in the story is that his servants are to engage in business until I come. So that's why we're here. That's why he has left us here to live in this fallen world in the midst of the darkness and sin and hostility of so many against our king, against us. We are here to engage in business, in gospel business until he comes. 
I think to understand why I think that the mina represents the gospel is I think that this part of the story that Jesus tells actually points to an exact, uh, a literal historical interaction between Jesus and his disciples. I think the nobleman going to receive his kingdom, um, administering a mina, administering a resource to his servants actually takes place in Acts chapter 1. Let me read it to you. This is, begins in verse 6. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, listen to their question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, they still haven't gotten out this idea of an immediate full kingdom out of their head yet. It's, you know, he'd been crucified, he'd been raised from the dead, he hasn't yet ascended to the Father to receive his kingdom. And his disciples said, is now the time? that you established the fullness of the kingdom. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Remember what Jesus said his mission was? What his spiritual kingdom would look like? He says, I have come as a witness to the truth. Now that he has done all that's necessary to establish his kingdom and he's about to make his claim to the Father, he says, you will be my witnesses to the truth. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to enable you to do it. The word of God and the Holy Spirit is how the kingdom spreads its influence in this fallen world. That's what Acts chapter 1 is trying to say. We are the witnesses to the truth and we are to take that truth to the ends of the earth. This reminds me what Paul, how Paul characterized his own calling as an apostle, as a preacher, as a pastor, as a teacher. He characterized it and called it the, the, the calling that he and his assistants had. They, he called himself servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Stewards are those who receive their master's belongings and use their master's belongings according to their master's will for the, for the benefit of the master. He says, we who have been given the word of God are stewards of the mysteries of God. When Paul was writing to Timothy, he calls the gospel the deposit that was entrusted to you. In other words, your mina. You've all been given a mina. You've been given a mina and you are to engage in kingdom business to take the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth to be the witnesses to the truth. Now what does it mean to take the word of God to the ends of the earth? What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be a faithful steward of the mysteries of God? Well, it actually means a lot of things. It certainly means sharing your faith, you know, evangelizing the people around you. Certainly it means that, but it means so much more than that. When you pursue holiness in your life, you are being a witness to the truth because you are conforming your life to the image of Christ. And as you conform your life in thought, word, and deed to the image of Christ, you are being a witness to the truth that is in Christ. When you study the word of God so that you might become biblically wise and spiritually mature, you are being a witness to the truth. You are conforming your life to what God's word teaches 
by deeply studying it and applying it to your life. And so you're being a witness to the truth. When you gather here on Sunday to worship, you are being a witness to the truth of who is the one to be worshipped. You are bearing witness before the world of the truth that Christ is the only way to the Father. When you fulfill your calling in life, whether that's as a garbage man or a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a student or a housewife or a mother or a father, whatever your calling is in life, as you fulfill that calling with integrity and excellence, you are being a witness to the truth. You are fulfilling your mission and the, the influence of Christ's spiritual universal kingdom begins to transform the world around you. When you tithe, you are witnessing to the truth that you are only a steward of the resources that God has given and you are to use those resources for his glory and for the extending of his kingdom. When you teach your children, when you teach Sunday school, you lead a Bible study, you are witnessing to the truth. When you give to missionaries, you are enabling the, the truth to go forward to the ends of the earth. You are fulfilling your calling, you're being a faithful steward. Bottom line is, every moment of every day, you're on mission to fulfill the great commission of our great king. And you're doing it in the face of hostility. The scriptures are clear from beginning to end that it's going to be a faithful remnant. It's going to be a minority of humanity that are awakened by the Spirit to believe the word of God, to trust in the Messiah, and to submit to his reign. And the majority of the human population is going to be opposed to you. They may not openly recognize it. They may not even recognize it about themselves. But they are hostile to the king. They are living in rebellion to the king. And that's the reality of doing ministry until he comes again. And you minimize or deny that hostility that we face to your own peril. So we learn to wait patiently if we know the reason why the king had to depart, and if we understand the purpose of us being deployed here to be witnesses to the truth, but we also gain the strength to be patient waiting for our king to return by the hope that he has given to us. And that's our hope of eternal reward. The story ends with that part of it. In verse 15, the king returns and he calls in his servants to give an account for their service. Interestingly, he only mentions three. He only needs three for any, to give his examples. Three of the ten servants are mentioned. Two of them he calls good servants, faithful stewards. Two of them are good servants. The first one reports that his one mina has now become ten minas. A thousand percent gain on his investment. I'd like to hire that guy as my financial advisor. A thousand percent gain on what was entrusted to him. The second service reports that his one mina has become five minas, a 500 percent gain on what he was entrusted with. But I want you to notice the humility in their report. They both said, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas, or your mina has made five minas. Not I made you 10 minas. I made you five minas. It was the mina that did it. 
And I think Jesus is intentionally alluding to there to what the minor represents, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The mina, the deposit of truth that he has placed in our hands as stewards has the power to transform lives, to transform civilizations. Or as Isaiah the prophet talked about the power of the truth of God in Isaiah 55 verse 11. God there says of his word, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish all that I, for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. The word of God and the Holy Spirit is all we need to change the world because the power is in the word and the spirit, not in us. What reward did the two faithful servants get the one who took one mina and watched it turn into 10 minas by faithful investment faithful engaging in business 10 cities he took three and a half months worth of income for a common laborer and he ends up with 10 cities the other one turned it into rule over five cities the first message there is when the Lord rewards, and this is consistent with what he teaches in Scripture, when the Lord rewards us for faithful service, it's pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, way beyond anything that we had to start with. His reward is unimaginably large. But the second message is that that reward is not as mundane as we tend to think of rewards. It's not financial. It's not material. I'm sure there will be material rewards in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns, but it's responsibility. You get to reign in the new heavens and the new earth. And the Bible clearly teaches that. And I, I'll be honest with you, I don't understand what it means when it says that we're going to reign with Christ. He'll be the, the ultimate authority and we will reign under his authority. I don't know what that looks like. I, I, I like to imagine what it looks like. You know, for me, it means... I hope he gives me northwestern Pennsylvania. But, you know, I'm not sure what that looks like. But we're going to reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth, and that'll be our reward. To fulfill the original mission given to Adam and Eve, to take dominion over this new heavens and new earth that belongs to God. And it's going to be glorious. But what about our sins? What about our failures? Anytime that the Bible speaks to me about the need to be a faithful steward of what God has placed in my hands, my mind immediately goes to how often, daily, I fail to do that. To what a, a bad manager I am in so many ways. How I do things for my own glory and not his glory. How I hide the truth instead of putting the truth out there. The answer to that is simple. The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ covers your failures, your sins, your selfishness. The Westminster Confession of Faith is the document that is the doctrinal standard for our denomination, the PCA. And in chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says this about our good works. He says, because believers are accepted in themselves through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were wholly blameless in this life and irreproachable in God's sight, 
but because he, looking on them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward all that which is sincere, although accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Yes, our motivations are always going to be corrupted by sin and pride, but that's covered in the blood of Christ, and he accepts our service as imperfect as it is and rewards us for it. That's grace. So I tried to think of something to illustrate this idea. My mind immediately went to an experience I had as an eight-year-old. When I was eight, I already loved baseball. And I was so excited to go for my first tryout to make the team, the Little League team in my town. And I, I was so nervous, and, but I'd never had any training. I didn't know how, how to hit. I didn't know how to throw. And I went to this tryout, and I bombed badly. I was terrible. And I was devastated. I went and checked the roster, and of course, I wasn't on the roster. I didn't make the team. And I went home, and I cried. But I didn't tell my mom that I didn't make the team. Matter of fact, I told her, Mom, I need to be at practice tomorrow at 4 o'clock. And so she took me to practice, and I walked up to the coach, and he was gathering all the players together, and he was going over his roster, and my name wasn't on there. And he said, well, that's weird. And I guess he assumed it must have been a mistake because he sent me to right field. <laughs> and I stayed on the team all year. What does, what does that have to do with what we were just talking about? Well, mistakes are what disqualified me in the tryout. But once I was on the roster by grace, the mistakes were opportunities for my coach to teach me to do better. And it's kind of like the kingdom of God that way. I know the analogy breaks apart after a while. <laughs> but, but the point is, we don't do our good works in order to be qualified for the kingdom. We are brought into the kingdom by grace. And then when we do fail, when we do sin, it's only an opportunity for our loving Father to teach us to do it right. And he will be faithful in doing that. One of the best quotes as I was doing my studies this week, one of the best quotes I came across to try to describe this in just a nutshell came from J.C. Ryle. He said this, our title to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works. Only reward, no condemnation. That's all I know. I don't fully understand it all, but it's only reward and no condemnation when our king returns. But then this brings us to the dark side of the story. One of the three servants that are mentioned is called wicked by the returning king because he took his, his mina that was entrusted to him and he hid it and did nothing with it. Why? He gives his reason in verse 21. I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and reap what you do not, did not sow. You know what that tells me? He didn't trust the king. The king left and he didn't trust him. And so he took the mina and he hid it. And what else it tells me is that he had not been listening to the faith of the two good servants who were being faithful. He was listening to the citizens and their lies. The ones who didn't want the king to reign. The ones who rejected the king. He was believing their lies and not listening 
to what the servants servants were witnessing to the truth. The rest of the story tells how generous this king is. And yet, to this unfaithful steward, he was considered harsh and severe. Isn't this story very similar to what happened in the Garden of Eden? Satan came to Eve and misrepresented God. And she believed the lies of Satan instead of the word of God. She believed that what Satan told her, that God was withholding good from her and Adam, that God was withholding power, that he was somehow against them. And she believed the lie, and she rebelled. She rejected God's authority and was cast out. So many people do the same thing today. They believe the lies of Satan about who God is. They believe the lies of Satan about who Jesus is. They believe the lies of Satan about what the gospel is. And they reject the true king and his word. This servant, the third servant, the wicked servant, is like what we'd call a nominal believer, a believer in name only. He professes to serve the king, but he doesn't really trust him, and he refuses to live by the truth and to do business with the truth. He ignores the truth. He puts it away. And then there's the really darkest part of the story, which it ends on, and on a very somber and shocking note. The story ends with verse 27, where the king says, As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I wish that wasn't part of the gospel in some ways, but it has to be if the king is truly just. So much of the progressive world and progressive church wants to deny what this part of the story teaches. That when this king returns, yes, he's going to reward his faithful servants, but those who rejected him will be eternally destroyed. You don't have to take my word for it. Let me read what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 7, when he talks about when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And there you will see in vivid reality that separation between the majority who say, I will not have this king to reign over me, and the minority of the faithful remnant that serve him by being witnesses to his truth. It is hard to wait for Jesus Christ to return. We've been waiting a long time. But his word tells us how to wait patiently. He is coming back to deliver us once and for all from the power, the presence, and the penalty of sin. He is coming back soon, once for all, to defeat all of his enemies and to bring perfect justice and to establish his perfect and eternal kingdom. But those who are faithful servants who trust the king and trust his word, 
and are witnesses to the truth, we will be rewarded. This story tells us how to grow in our patience by keeping our focus on why he had to go and especially in the way in which he had to leave and why he's left us here to be witnesses to the truth and why we have eternal hope in him and in him alone. I want to close by reading one of my favorite passages on the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it encapsulates the whole message that this parable is alluding to. It begins by saying in 2 Peter, this is 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The one word in there used to bother me. It says, waiting for and hastening the coming of God. And I'm not sure everything that Peter had in mind when he said that. What does it mean to hasten the day of God? Isn't that day set? I mean, Acts 1 says that the Father has fixed the date of the return of his Son. How could we possibly change the date of his coming? Well, that, I don't think that's what Peter says. Certainly, it's not. doesn't mean that whatever we do could make it come sooner. That's not what he's saying. The only way I can understand it is light, in light of another experience I had when I was in college. I had a summer job, and it was a summer job with a company, National Fuel Gas, that um, they set this program up for college students, but we were assigned to bosses and work in certain locations, and the bosses knew that we were just there for a few months, and we weren't trained, and we were mostly just a, a bother to the boss, and so what my boss would do is he would give me busy work to do. He would send me off somewhere away from the other workers to do something, knowing that what I was doing wasn't important, but at least got me out of the way until the summer was over. And of course, I picked up on that pretty quickly, that, that what I was doing really wasn't important. So being the typical selfish 20-something that I was, I decided I'm just going to quickly do whatever small job he gave me, and I just sit there and watch the clock until my time was over. Boy, does the clock move slowly when you do that. You sit there and watch the clock move, time goes really, really slowly. Never do that again. And I certainly don't want to live my life that way. I need to be busy until he comes. I need to be engaged in gospel witness until he comes, and the time will fly by. And I'm at a stage of life where I can say, it's flying by. All we need to do is be faithful. Live by and witness to the truth. He is coming again. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to wait. It takes faith to wait. It takes trust to wait. And in your word, you tell us that if we desire faith, you give it as a gift. 
And so, Lord, increase our faith. Help us to see more clearly why you had to leave us in the way in which you left us. Help us to see more clearly what you are doing in your spiritual kingdom as you reign over the heavens and the earth from heaven itself. And Lord, help us to understand more deeply our purpose in being here. Each one of us and each one of our particular circumstances and our particular families and our particular friend groups and a particular workplace and our particular neighborhood, Lord, help us to understand what it means to be witnesses to the truth in every aspect of our lives. And Lord, we do pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.